Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. And this week, I'm delighted to have Nick Holly with me. So thanks, Nick, for being with me. Pleasure. In terms of introducing Nick for the benefit of an audience who haven't come across him yet, he actually um, started out not in HR, but in investment banking roles with Merrill Lynch, where I was told earlier that they've never even heard of HR. I've never heard of <laughs> you HR. You don't. Okay. Oops, yes. <laughs> okay. Good correction there, get you into trouble. Um, and then 13 years ago, you set up as, um, in, as, as a consultant you know, in your own business. And I'm now working um, as Associate Director of Learning, noted at the Corporate Research Forum, which we'll ask more about later, yeah. because um, when I started out, when I spotted Nick, I actually spotted him on LinkedIn to do to, with his HR doctor work, because um, he's been a writer in mm. various um, publications in HR. And just to emphasize for the purpose of the tapes, the portfolio of roles that you now carry out, Nick, are all about people and performance. So very much aligned with what the HR uprising is all about. Um, also, in terms of what the Corporate Research Forum is, as I admitted to you earlier and also to the people who got on the HR Uprising LinkedIn group, when I went to visit the website, I realised that it was purely aimed at HR. So there was so much fantastic stuff that I want to hear more about. Um, yet in my head, I just thought it was a, a business research piece. So uh, I think it's highly relevant, the work that you do with this particular organisation as well for the purpose of our audience so that's my garbled introduction. Hopefully, I got most points correct, Nick, but I'm going to hand over to you if you would like to clarify anything. Sure. And perhaps tell us a bit about the corporate research yeah, forum. Yeah. The, the only missing piece is the middle bit. So after I left investment banking, I actually went into OD and HR roles. So I spent 17 years in corporate life doing senior HR leadership roles. So the stuff I talk about, I haven't just studied and researched. I have done a lot of it. Um so the Corporate Research Forum, in fact, what attracted me to work with them, I started working with them three and a half years ago, was Mike Haffenden, who runs CRF, established it 25 years ago, and I've known him for that whole period. And it's the fact that we share the same passion, that HR is not about HR, HR is about the business. And there's so few people I come across who don't have that HR-centric view of the world that... Mike starts with the business. And actually, that's why it's the Corporate Research Forum, not an HR yeah. research forum. Currently, we have 210 members. Um, we do research. So for the last 25 years, we've published extensive research, four or five pieces every year, where we will work with the top academics in the field. But we work with them to take their rigor and turn it into something practical and applicable. We run events throughout the year. We have an annual conference. It's coming up in Barcelona at the beginning of the year. But the, the common theme of all of it is while we're aiming at an HR audience, we're trying to really raise their sights and thinking about the nuts and bolts to a, of HR to what are the challenges that business is facing in the, in the future and how should HR respond to that? So on that point, we often talk about HR being more strategic, but I'm not sure that's what you're saying, is it? Are you saying, is there a difference between being strategic and putting the business first? 
in your um, view? Or is I, that what the answer is? I think always the worry about the word strategic is people want the word strategic in their title because it somehow or other makes them seem important. <laughs> to, to us and to me personally, the key thing is you've got to support businesses in, achieve, in creating value. Now, I've worked in the past with academics, with charities, with government. They are still there to create values, just not necessarily shareholder value. So to me, strategic to me is understanding how an organization creates value and using that to drive what HR does. I remember sharing this insight with one group once and an HR director sort of jumped up and stuck a hand up and said, oh, I get it, Nick. I can use this to justify what I'm doing. It's kind of, no, you're totally and utterly missing the point. The, the second element of that is value is created not just by being operationally efficient in the here and now, but it's really understanding the future trends in your market um, and developing out of that a strategy to respond to it. And I see HR's second core role, which is where the strategic comes in, is to help an organization create the capability that it requires to deliver its strategy. So on one of the papers that I've seen you write about, you're talking about disrupt. I mean, we see disruptive being used in relation to mm. HR, but I think quite often it's as saying we need to disrupt the HR profession. But you see that it's slightly different from that, don't yeah. you? Now, to, to me, virtually every business we work with is facing massive disruption. And that disruption comes in many, many different shapes and, and sizes. But it's a common theme for everybody. So if HR's role is to create the capability of an organization to deliver its strategy, and its strategy is being created in a disruptive external environment with new competitors, new ways of going to market, <clears throat> new technology, etc., my proposition is HR should be creating a capability in business to be the disruptor in their industry. And I think one of the challenges is too many people in organizations, particularly at the sort of business unit level, are so focused on the short term and on efficiency. What they're not doing is standing back. So, for instance, we ran a session a couple of months ago with Howard Yu, who's a professor of innovation at IMD, who's one of our, our partners. And it was a fascinating sec session because he didn't really talk about HR. What he talked about was disruption and the need for organizations. And I love the phrase is to do more deep work. And since then, I've been reading a lot around this, that we have this cult of busyness, not yeah. business, but busyness. Yeah. You know, the inbox is always on, the social media, open plan office, which are an absolute disaster in terms of focus, yeah. endless meetings. And what we need to do is not just think about that operational efficiency, being busy, 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 but to, to carve aside time to really think through where is our business going and what capabilities does HR need to support the business in creating to deal with that disruption. Because if you respond to disruption, you're dead. The key is to be ahead, ahead of, of the it. curve and be the disruptor. <clears throat> and in all the work, I've used, looked at organizations like ING, um, at Zara, at Microsoft, at 3M. This isn't just the unicorns. No, it's not just the Ubers. You know, the startup businesses that are disrupting. There are a lot of very big organizations that are highly effective mm. at disruption, but they think about their whole business in a very, very different way. So staying with the sort of the HR piece here, there's lots of questions that came out of that for me, but the one I'll drill into is, obviously, we've got an HR audience here. And if we're 
we're almost the way you're describing the HR role there is is almost like a change agent, yeah. um, helping the business to disrupt, as opposed to what we might call as, as traditional HR. So, is that the What's your view on that? Is it about us all having different hats on in the same role or is it about spreading out HR capability? Yep. What's your view there? So first of all, one thing I want to stress is the traditional more admin-y side of HR is still really important. And if you don't get that basic HR right, you've got no right to play at the what we discussed as strategic earlier on. In fact, I remember interviewing one CEO who said, I find it bloody cheeky that my HR director wants to talk about this when she's not delivering all the basic stuff. Yeah. We haven't got our policies or, you know, we haven't paid yeah. recruitment or whatever. So what I'm not saying is that doesn't matter. I'm saying that is the, that is the table stakes you have to get right. But beyond that, where I think too many people in HR go wrong is they start with HR. I remember in the early 90s attending a conference and a guy called Paul Evans from INSEAD, he just had this one phrase and a light bulb went off in my mind. The world is full of solutions looking for problems. And too often in HR, I think we do benchmarking and we go to conferences and we look at so-called best practice without understanding that best practice irrelevant of context is irrelevant. We have to embed ourselves in the context of the business and particularly bringing the outside in. I think it's a critical role for HR to really think of what's going on in the external environment. Some of this is specific to your industry, but there are other issues. We had a we had a CRF podcast recently with Julia House from Mercer, where she opened my eyes to the, the workforce crisis that every business is going to face, which is the first time in human history, whilst the population is increasing, the workforce is decreasing. And that's not just the UK and the US or Japan. It's in China, it's in Vietnam. And this is a massive. Now, nobody in the business is thinking about that. So I think this is the key thing is it's it's within HR, really thinking about what are the challenges the business is facing and then taking a systemic joined up HR approach to how do what activities do we need to drive out of that and how do we work across HR, not as a bunch of disconnected silos where comp and Ben does comp and Ben and L&D does L&D because the answer is never just a training course. There might be an element of it, although I'm a little bit suspicious, um, but if, for instance, your issue is about increasing sales, is it an issue about the skills of the workforce or is your sales context and the way you bonus people actually at fault? So if you run the training, but you don't change the sales cont- contest, it's not going to work. Yeah. And I think too often in HR, because HR is for HR and then comp and ben people are very proud of their profession yeah. and L&D are L&D, if Instead of thinking about what we do, if we think about the difference we're going to make to the business, it will focus to work much more together to drive things that the business needs to compete more effectively. And it gives you much more credibility within the business if they feel you genuinely understand what they're yeah. trying to achieve yeah. and, and things. I, with with value, I do appreciate the point that um, you've got to get the essentials in place first. One thing. That can, res- can I just go on. just one thing on that? I do get disturbed by people in HR focusing on becoming more credible as an outcome. To me, and it's your point, if you do these things, you naturally become credible. And it's like people who bleat about not having a seat at the table. All the good HR people I know, usually early in their career, didn't have a seat at the table, but they just did things 
where it became obvious that they should have a seat at the table. You know, one of the best HR directors I know, Catherine Taylor, um, when she joined Mercedes, she didn't have a seat at the table. So what did she do? She just went and sat at the table <laughs> and did things that were value adding, not just in the HR space, but across the whole business. And of course, the MD is then saying, well, why on earth weren't you at the table? It just became obvious to him. She never asked. So it's not really <laughs> about the HR role per se. It's about showing the value first, that you understand the business. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which could be a personal trait, um, but then I suppose the the whole profession is elevated as by us acting that way. Um, I wanted to go back to the fact that you use this term, where's the problem, and sending the problem, and it reminds <laughs> yeah. me of um, the conversation that I had with Rob Brino, one of the earlier podcasts, which is all about where's the problem. Good friend of mine. Yep. Yeah, which, which is which is I completely agree with, and, and you've yeah. got a great analogy yeah. you shared earlier I'd like you to share about the manufacturing firm. I think it was this, that yep. sort of thing. Yeah, but. What I always want to try and do is make this as tangible as possible, these progress. So I think if I, if the HR people out there who are listening, if I want to show more value, it's almost about me trying not to be reactive and be stuck in busyness, but it's about me taking a step back and go, what's the actual problem? Am I actually fixing the problem? What's helpful, which is where my challenge always is to uh, Rob, is yes, that yes. go, well, where's the evidence? If there isn't any evidence, and he, and he does con- you know, concede this point, yeah. then you need to look at the evidence that's in your environment externally and internally and make the best move forward, the strategy yeah. forward. But the point yeah. is you're responding to the problem yeah. um, as opposed to, I guess, your habit maybe. So it, would you share that example you were talking about? Um, yeah, just this good I'll, I'll come back. And there is this general point. I just want to reinforce it. The number of times I work with organisations and they share what HR is doing, and the question I ask them is, so what is the business problem that that is the answer to? Yeah. And it disturbs me how often they just don't have an answer for that. So I was working with one L&D team and they had all this NLP training. What What is the problem that NLP is the answer to? Oh, but I'm a master NLP practitioner. And it turns out that was why they were running the training. And the, and the challenge they were facing was nobody went on their training. And the example I you asked me about, which you talked about earlier, was I was asked to respond in one of the HR magazines to a reader question. And the the, the reader or the the person asking the question was the HR director of a manufacturing business that was in trouble. And the question was, because, you know, our numbers are down and the board want to cut the training budget. And I see training as a right of every employee. And so what I need is some help in persuading the board to continue to invest in training. This is your HR. This was in. Yeah. This was the letter, was it all? Yeah, 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 it was a letter, and you know, I I got very unpopular because my response was, "You are asking the wrong question. The question you need to start with is, why is our business in trouble? How are we going to get out of trouble? And what does HR need to do to support the business in that journey?" Um, and part of the thing I said to her was, "I, you know, is this a right for every employee? Because my view is." If at the end of this whole process, you've given all your workers training, but they've gone out of business, they don't care. But if they've had no training and they've kept their jobs, I think they will love you. And so one of my examples was perhaps, you know, you need to look at who are your two or three best salespeople, invest in some personal development, probably not training, maybe some Mm. coaching to make them even better. Mm. And they win two or three game-changing contracts that turn the business around. That's what your role is all about, not just providing irrelevant training. And, you know, I'm an L&D person, I guess, a lot, an OD person by background. And it frustrates me how often companies have these menus of training 
that to me bear no relationship to their industry, their business, or what they're trying to do. Mm. I won't go down that one initially because <laughs> I, I I agree. Um, you know, so so the interesting thing, I suppose, is the point again for me of this looking up is even when we think we're being strategic, having you know it being in internal corporate roles, which we've both done. We've often got our internal cost, uh, customers shouting the loudest. So, you know, for example, the sales team, they might not say just develop the three people, the good people, because they might say they don't need it. They might say, actually, yep. Yep. they all need something else, which is they need a new sales process. You know, I've worked in one company yep. where we had yep. five sales processes, I think, trained. You spend yep. lots of money on that instead. Um, so it's actually as taking even more of a step back, not just looking up in our own businesses strategically, but looking outside the market and really understanding what makes our business successful or organisation successful yep. or not, those bigger problems that are outside there. Um, and that's quite a discipline, mm-hmm. I think, because you do often have internal pressures, particularly if you're in a role where people are used to coming to you to solve their smaller problems, their transactional yep. problems, yep. it's easy to get pushed back into that. And I, and I think it's fascinating to explore that because I think the root of the problem here is a mindset and I think part of the mindset has come out of this concept of HR business partners. Now, we run an HR business partner program because that's the job title of so many people. And I, I always get into trouble because the first thing I say is I don't really like the concept of business partnering because we are not business partners. We are part of the business, yeah. number one. Number two, you mentioned the phrase internal customers, which to me talks about who are we accountable to as a function. And my view is we are not accountable to line managers. We are accountable to the long-term sustainability of the business. Um, I work with a number of senior group HR directors. Jenny Devalier, actually, we're running a group HRD program the next two days, and she comes and talks on it. She was the group HR director at Arm. Mm. She now has a portfolio of non-exec roles on companies like Guardian Media. And one of the issues she talks about at the previous occasion in her life as an HR director, the problem was her boss, the CEO. And if she had seen herself as accountable to the CEO, she would never have addressed it. Right. She was accountable to the chair and the board, and she had to go to them. Now, politically, that's a really difficult situation yeah. to be in. But she was clear she was accountable to the organisation. Um, and I think this is a challenge, not just for people at the, the senior level within HR, but it's everybody understanding that you might be a business partner within a particular business unit, but you are one of only two functions. I see finance as the other one that takes an enterprise-wide perspective. So what might be good for your internal customer is not necessarily good for the enterprise. And if your role is to create value for the enterprise, whether that's shareholder value in a private company or value for the taxpayer in the public sector or for the donors and recipients of aid in a charity... The concept is still the same. And therefore, when we receive this request, one of the concepts we teach is laddering, which is the danger in HR is we get a request for a training program and we immediately climb down the ladder and operationalize it. So how much budget have you got? What are the learning outcomes? Who do you want to send on it? And then we deliver the program. Our argument is you need to climb up the ladder to, first of all, having had a request to explore what's really going on here to understand what is the root cause of the problem. And if it's not about skill, is a training program even relevant? To engage in a challenging conversation and then arrive at a conclusion of this is what the real problem is. And sometimes the classic thing is, in our attempt to be credible 
and responsive, we will do whatever line managers mm. ask us to do. Mm. And there's a fundamental difference in what they want and what they need. So that's interesting. You went that credible, responsive, and I would nearly add on there liked. Yeah, oh, um, totally. And and I'm <laughs> just into your example about Jackie, which is interesting. A courageous. It, it's yep. because you've yep. got to um, stand out against someone who, in theory, is more powerful than you. Um, and what what I suppose you know, we all start out somewhere, and there's a, you can take yourself to a certain level. Uh, it's at what point do you have the the courage to go? Actually, no, I don't. This is where my accountability is, and I, yep. I'm not yep. quite sure that because you've really got to have quite a level of self confidence and courage that you know. Yep. You're not going to get it wrong. I'll give you a personal example. Many years ago, I worked for a really great HR director called Julian Gell, and he gave me a brilliant piece of feedback. He said, your problem, Nick, is you tend to work with the people who share your passion. And the problem is most of them don't matter. Right. And it really knocked me back because what I realised is I like to be liked. Yeah. And this has been a huge challenge for me personally. And what I've had to learn is it is not about being liked. It's about being respected. And that in that organisation, what I had to do was work out who are the people who are contributing the largest quantum of value creation and working with them. And to be honest, in many cases, Julie and I both knew they weren't particularly nice people. And I'd seen that as their problem. What he helped me understand is it's my problem. You can't get the job done unless you get them on board. Absolutely. And it's not about being liked. In my opinion, it comes back to something you said at the very beginning. There are three levels of HR. When you start in HR, there is no substitute for understanding HR and the models and the basics that we discussed at the beginning. At the next level in HR, you've got to have that. But what you add on to it is your understanding of the commercial and strategic challenge the business is facing. And you use that to drive what you do in HR. Those two things give you something to talk about. At senior level, my observation is the differentiator is political savvy. It's the combination of courage and all the things you talked Mm. about. But fundamentally, it's the ability to get things done in dysfunctional, highly political environments with total personal integrity, Yes. not not for your own ends and not for the ends of HR, but to help the organisation succeed. And that is about power and influence and networking and understand how decisions are really made in your organisation and how information really flows around and how to tap into that understanding to influence the people who need you need to influence to get it done. Because mm. I think one of the biggest challenges in HR is we have accountability, but we don't always have responsibility. So much of what we do is delivered through the line, through the business. But ultimately, we are accountable for that. Mm-hmm. So getting people to understand what the problem is, is absolutely fundamental. Because I don't think often people in deep in enterprises are so focused on delivering the quarterly numbers and this was this, I mentioned Howard you from IMD earlier. This was his point is people in business aren't doing the deep thought, thinking about the external environment. They are so focused on being busy yeah. and delivering just the, the quarterly numbers without realising that the whole context is changing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And you could be going completely in the wrong direction. Absolutely. And that, but that, that applies widely to everyone in every organisation in terms of yeah. you know, how, yeah. how busy yeah. it is and how things are changing. And, I, I, you know, he, he's not a friend or whatever, but I'd read his book. His book is called Leap because it is about this need. When faced with a disruptive environment, you've got to make a leap. It's no good just responding to what you're currently doing and doing it better. You've got to think about how do you redefine your industry? How do you become the disruptor? 
Otherwise, there is some man or woman in some garage somewhere who's got a startup business that's going to kill your business. Yeah. Times are changing so quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of the where we're going with this, I, I wanted to go on to OD, I think, because yep. uh, we were talking about it at the start, and, and I think I mentioned to you the most downloaded episode, which took me by surprise, is one of our early episodes, which yep. was Demystifying OD. And we had a conversation with this, and it, it, I'd done that episode because someone had actually contacted me on LinkedIn and said, yes, I've got OD in my title, and I don't know what it means. And I'm like, wow, it's so misunderstood. Yeah. Um, for me, there's, there's something that is about gluing the organisation. It's about organisational strategy, but there's a hefty proportion of change to be OD yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, and that's, I feel, going back to the point we just made there about the seniority of people, you need to be able to influence others to come with you. You might not yeah. have that positional power. You have might not have the, you've got the accountability, but not the responsibility but therefore, you've got to be able to persuade and influence people to get yep. on board. And yep. that, for me, fits into the sort of the OD prowess, I suppose. I know you're doing, in fact, you've got something happening. I will put links, by the way, as ever, um, people listening to this, to Leap that you mentioned earlier yep. and to various other relevant yep. stuff yep. from the um, CRF. But you've got an OD um, session going in, in, yep. going in the, the autumn, haven't you? Sure. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we are currently in the process of writing an OD manifesto working with a number of leading thinkers. And November the 5th, we have an event in London. We've got people like Margaret Heffernan and Miyang Cheng Judge, who I think is one of the absolute superstars of OD. I think I got, yeah, yeah. I'll have to stay for the benefit of the tape. And some of the people who listen to this are on our LinkedIn group. And if you're not, you might be interested in enjoying it and the HR Advising LinkedIn group. A question was asked to me whether there were any OD courses that I'd recommend. Mm. And I'd gone on one 10 years ago at Roffey Park, and I, I thought it was brilliant, but I didn't think they still did it. And then I started talking to you, Nick, and looked into the CRF and realised that this yep. is the lady who's actually running your programme yep. here. So yep. um, you think she's great. I certainly, the programme yeah, I yeah. went on was brilliant. Inspirational. Um, the, the core of what we're talking about here is... Too many people who call themselves OD professionals are glorified facilitators. Um, and that actually in the last 10 years, you know, 20 odd years ago, there was some really leading thinking. You know, my first HR role was head of OD. And I remember reading Ed Shine and, and a lot of these really great thinkers. It's intriguing how little new thought has gone into that. Yeah. And I think OD has become to me you know, a function within HR. Whereas our view, OD is more a philosophy of how you think systemically about the business and about HR, that good OD professionals really immerse themselves in the system within which an organisation is operating. So they understand competition. They understand these macroeconomic trends. They understand the changing needs of consumers. They understand where technology is going, etc. And they can make sense and do really great analytical and diagnostic work to understand the implications of that for their business, and then working within the business again systemically to understand all the elements of HR that need to work systemically, but also to bring in other elements within the business, because this is not just HR. It's as much working with marketing, with operations, with sales, with finance, etc., and creating a systemic response to the systemic challenges a business is thinking, uh, facing. You might detect there's a word there I keep using, which is systems thinking. Um, I was going to say, just for the benefit, because it's one of those things, would you explain that for people out there going, what does he mean by systemic? <laughs> I'll put you on the spot, but what would you, what's the, the layman's guide to that? Ooh, um, 
I have the amazing ability to take the simplest of concepts and overcomplicate it. So I'll, I'll try. But to me, systems thinking is, is understanding that there are a number of different elements within each system that actually, because they are all connected, impact on each other. So when you change, for instance, take an HR example, if you change your remuneration policy, it will inevitably have impacts on everything else. Systemic thinkers have already thought that through and are not surprised by it. Yeah. Linear thinkers just focus entirely on, on changing their remuneration policy without thinking of the impact. So it's impact. kind of a tick box and they expect everything to change but not realise it hasn't. Absol- absolutely. I, rem- I remember once getting in trouble because I did a, I did a session in, in Russia and my one slide said it changed the strategy and then my, my next slide had two crossed fingers and then my third slide and change happens. What I hadn't realised that in Russia, the, the, the crossed fingers actually is the same as one finger in America or oh, two <laughs> fingers in England. So apparently I'd just shown the finger to my audience. But, okay. but, but the point Amazing about... Amazing what you learn on this podcast. So be careful when you go to Russia. But, but the point, the, the, the core point was too often we think of change management as we, we send the PowerPoint presentation out to everybody and, and things will change. Systemic thinking is really exploring and understanding the linkages also understanding that the only outcome you won't get is the one you expect. Yeah. So good systems thinkers don't roll things out. They will pilot things in a limited environment, understand the impact that it's having in the real world. My, my, my deep earliest background was I was an army officer in the, in the 70s. And there's a great uh, German military philosopher called von Clausewitz in the 19th century who said no strategy survives contact with the enemy. My my interpretation of that is no no plan survives contact with reality, yeah. and therefore you've got to test things in the real world and respond to what's going on and be aware of the system because the system one day I'll tell you another little story. I worked years ago in this organisation. I was doing some work near Newcastle, and I did the work and I sat and it was brilliant. And I sat down with the HR director afterwards. God, thirty years ago now. I said, I was on fire today. And he said, well, Nick, can I just point out something to you? All these guys are Geordies. They all support Newcastle United. And last night they beat Antwerp 5-0 in the UEFA Cup game. It didn't matter what you did. It was going to work. They were going to love you. If they'd lost to Sunderland 1-0 last night, it wouldn't have mattered what you did. It would have been a disaster. Mm. And it's it's understanding cold that cold water on your yeah. fire there. But a systemic thinker yeah. understands that you have to understand that context. Mian talks about the, the 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 use of self that you are part of that system. Every time you step into the river, the river changes. Every time you step into the river, the river changes you. But you can you can't predict where the river is going to go. So you need a systemic good OD professional is constantly engaging with the system, diagnosing, making sense of what is going on, and then adapting to an emergent reality. Not, which I see too many people, not just in HR, but in business, they create their plan and their Gantt chart, and they see their role as like a, a, a train driver. And the Gantt chart are the tracks. And my job is to sit in the track, in the cab, press forward and keep going. My analogy of systems thinking is you're trying to dock a super tanker in the middle of a storm 
and a wave comes along and it yeah. knocks you off course. If you keep going, you're now going in the wrong direction. You've got to constantly adjust backwards and forwards to what is going on in the system. Now, again, I said I would take a simple concept and talk about an incredibly no, complicated you, way. So I don't me. know if I've No, I think it's sense. really helpful just to be able to ask questions because mm. like, we hear these terms and then you think, well, it was actually really helpful because you're yeah. giving really nice examples and analogies. Um, for me, though, I was just thinking this, I always often feel that we get stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because in terms of a systems thinker, because my, 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 maybe I, I do have a bit of a bias for action, um, but you could end up thinking yourself in not saying, okay, because that's going <laughs> to knock on that. And you know, yeah, yeah. we've still got yeah. to decide, okay, so I'm aware that any of those things might knock on, so we can preempt, preempt that. And the same also with things like pilots and things like that. So you start with a pilot and then you get knocked off course then and you get distracted and put onto another project and things don't get followed through. And I suppose this then brings me back to Cotter talks about change being a process, not an event. Yep. You've got to have a level of keeping your eye on the ball, even if you are. So that's yeah, super tanker. Yeah. It might have got bounced off track, but you still knew where you were going. Absolutely. But that, that in itself is quite tricky. Yes. So keeping that that clarity of, of direction. Even if yes. you then go, actually, you know what, we've got to stop and change direction, but having the clarity that you are going yeah. in a direction and, and taking the organisation with you as you get bounced around by the waves. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I remember having a, a really big argument earlier in my life in a company that was fundamentally a project management company. And I was talking to this project manager, really top guy. And he said, my job is to keep the project time, cost and quality. And my challenge was, no, surely your job is to deliver the benefit at the end of it. And by the way, even at a higher level, your job is to ensure the benefit is still relevant. Because sometimes, do you know what? You have a, again, Julian, another one of my great, same guy mentioned, um, in this company, I was doing this big project. I was the head of L&D, director of training development. And over the weekend, we did a massive acquisition. And on the Monday, the project I'd been done, doing was completely and utterly irrelevant. So what I did was I tried to repurpose the project to demonstrate how it was still relevant. Yeah. And Julian had asked me out for lunch. And that was quite unusual. I thought, hmm, I need to, he kind of had a little chat and how things going. I just want to tell you what a great job you're doing on that project. Fantastic piece of work. But it's irrelevant. You need to go, and I know you think it's your baby, mm. but you need to go back and kill it. Yeah. Because How frustrating it's, for you, though, if you spent a lot of time and energy into it. Yeah, but, but I, I went back to the office and I killed it. No, it's just, uh, so the thing that, that's just happened to someone that we were going to do business with, that they suddenly, they put a year's worth of effort yeah, into something. Yeah. And then you just said that that company over the weekend made an acquisition. It's like they went out. Yeah, not expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, presumably, and this is pretty much what happened to this other client, where suddenly they're now merging with two other um, organizations so it's off the table for me the question did occur to me as a change agent could i have preempted that i've seen that coming was it all i know with the acquisitions yeah, sometimes yeah, you can't yeah, but yeah, that yeah. to have prevented that waste and it's just more of a philosophical one really. so so personally there it wasn't a waste because i learned a lot through it yeah and although the specific project was no longer relevant there were elements of the project that that Help me learn how to do what I then need to do better and I'd engage at the right level. But I, but I think what you're saying there is absolutely fundamental is we need to engage at the right level in an organisation. Again, perhaps my, my criticism of myself throughout my career is I, I like being liked and I'm, I don't challenge enough. Now, in the last 13 years where I've been on my own, I've learned that is the differentiator. But probably one of the reasons, if I'm honest, I left corporate life is I didn't have enough courage to challenge enough. And 
you know, engaging with the really senior stakeholders is absolutely critical. I, I worked with one IT company and they asked me to come in and spend half a day with their HR leadership team. And the question they were asking me is, we, we have a new approach to performance management companies, et cetera, et cetera. And we're getting no engagement with the leadership team. Right. And we got about halfway through the morning and I didn't say anything else because the HR director said, okay, Nick, I get what you're saying. <laughs> now, we don't really need your help, but feel free to stay here because what we need to do is we need to identify each of the senior leaders that we need to get engagement from and not try and sell this to them. But we're going to divide this up between us as a team and we are going to spend focused, deep thought working out what is their agenda, how do we connect with it, how do we deliver things that are relevant to them. Because what we've tended to do in the past is try and tinker with the PowerPoint presentations to make them attractive. And it was a challenge. And a couple of the people around that table couldn't do that because they just they didn't have the courage, as I admit I didn't have, to engage. But your point is absolutely fundamental. It's an interesting reflection. Should I have known that that was coming? I don't know if you would have, but it just strikes me that or at some point we get these projects and maybe we have to keep our stakeholder or sponsor connected more frequently so then they might suddenly click and go actually that's not going to be relevant anymore you know because we end up yeah, maybe yeah, working yeah. on something but I th it comes back to this conversation i was having with the project manager of it's about delivering the benefit but also it's about understanding is the benefit to and if we are face down yeah focusing on the gantt chart and the project we need constantly to be raising our sights mm. and looking around mm -hmm. and not just responding to the business when they say it's no longer relevant but actually going to the business and saying this is no longer relevant. Yeah. Because it does concern me the number of things that HR does that I struggle to understand how they are relevant. Uh, let, let me give you an example. When I was at Henley, I did quite a big piece of research into performance management. And I spoke to all the companies that four or five years ago were getting rid of ratings, you know, the Juniper Networks and Gap, et cetera, et cetera. And within a year or two, not because of my research within a year or two it became very fashionable to get rid of ratings and what i found in my research was all of these companies about 40 or 50 i spoke to all of them had said the same thing don't recommend what we're doing to other people because what i found was what was common to all of them was they all went through roughly the same process to arrive at a solution that was relevant to them and what they were trying to achieve was that what the business asked them for not necessarily but it's, have, it's being able to stand back and understand the context and deliver something that's relevant. Whereas I see so many companies just doing performance management because everybody does it. But, but what, how, what is driving performance in your business mm -hmm. and where do you need to focus? And does a five-point rating scale and a force distribution and once a year performance meetings address that? But that's not that, to me, ultimately isn't really the question. The question is... What drives performance and what can we do? Not starting with we need to do performance management. How do we design it to be relevant? It's that scapegoat, though, isn't it? The rating becomes a scapegoat. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't mean you're going to fix whatever you want. And incidentally, that, that very topic I'm going to do is going to be our next talk, um, podcast because there was um, a paper that was pushed out recently about this whole sort of ratings, not ratings, and it being a bit of a, okay, let's make a box, you know, just one of these non-things really that becomes yeah. that we get all hung up on. I'm actually quite proud because I did write an article based on this for one of the HR websites and it was their most clicked article of the year. 
And I think it was down to the title, which was Performance Management, the Giant Soul-Sucking Parasitic Monster of HR. <laughs> and you could probably Google it and I will. give a link to it. Because actually it does outline the eight steps in the process. And none of the companies said we have eight steps. But all of them, in hindsight, when you stood back and looked at all of them, they all followed the same process. Which, by the way, just a little aside, at the end, all of them realised that the most important thing was raising the skills of line managers to have great conversations mm-hmm. with their people. And it's not the IT and it's not the process or the definition of the ratings. It's you've got to hold line managers accountable to actually have great conversations with their people. And if they're not willing to have them, there need to be consequences. Yeah, yeah. And performance management might be a way in which you can have visibility of whether they're doing that or not. It's a tool that might help, but it's you're probably going back to your HR need to look outside. The, the managers need to be looking at what is going to drive yes. performance in the organisation. And that's what the that's why it's called performance management, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you see your internal line managers, sorry, if you see your line managers as your internal customers and you're an HR business partner, your job is to do whatever they want to keep them happy. And, and, and as you say, if your whole personal drive inside is to be liked yeah. and to be and helpful. to be helpful. Mm then the danger is you work very hard to do things that don't really matter. But everybody loves you. But Hugh Mitchell, who was the Group HR Director at Shell, who I think is one of the greatest HR people I've ever come across, um, we work quite closely with him. And he he actually, I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing the story, but when he took over, he got some feedback on all of his direct reports. And he said the ones that got the best feedback were the ones I investigated because they were the ones that worried me because they were the ones who were doing everything that a senior leader wanted them to do. And, and as he said, that's not their, that the job is not to be liked. He talked about HR with attitude. So sorry, the ones, they, they were the ones that got good feedback? The ones that got the best feedback from their internal customers, uh, he said, they were the ones I was most worried about. Because his worry was they were getting great feedback because they just yeah. did whatever they liked, wanted them to do. Yeah, that's a good... Uh, a disrupting thinking, isn't it, yes, in terms of that? Yeah. So actually it's good for you to be getting pushback from people because you are doing the yeah, challenging. Yeah. And you've, you've got to, un, you know, as he said, it's, you know, beneath that there's then a lot of investigation because, you know, the fact they're getting good feedback doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. And the mm. fact they're getting bad feedback doesn't necessarily mean it's good. But what matters is if HR is going to create value for Shell, what do you need that top leadership team to be doing and focusing on? Yeah. And that's not just being liked. Equally, by the way, I'm not encouraging people to be disliked. No, no, that's not ideal. Either. Yeah. Well, it's, like, yeah. it's very hard to take people with you, which is one yeah. key role yeah. if you want to influence people. Being too. disliked is not politically savvy. <laughs> but it's, it's, I've almost had a visual of what we're saying. The ideal HR professional of the future or now is walking a tightrope. So it's getting yeah. that balance between yes. being courageous and yes. and influential and, and liked and taking people with you along this journey. And I think, and I think that, sorry, I think that is why it is such a difficult job because what you're fundamentally dealing with here is paradox and ambiguity Mm -hmm. because it's not one or the other. And I I remember doing some work, not in the HR space, with with a leadership team and they'd asked me to come in and talk to them about ambiguity. And it was almost a disaster because what they thought I was going to come in was with a bunch of analytical tools that they could use to create certainty. And I kept saying, but if I could do that, it wouldn't be ambiguous. Because <laughs> the point about the word ambiguous is there is no one right answer. And again, I think that's the systemic thing. I think this I whole that, theme. Yeah. And it's about how do you therefore make decisions in the face of ambiguity? That, yes, that's yes. our thing. And keep action and not be frozen 
yeah. paralyzed. Well, well, somebody gave me a wonderful phrase. You know, I've, I'm a great stealer of other people's wonderful example. He said, what you need to do is hold a strong opinion weekly. So what you need to do is do enough analysis. You need to do enough thinking of what is going on. You then need to move and do something, but you have to then be willing to accept you might be wrong and be willing to shift. Yeah. Actually, I can't think of her name. Another great book is called Being Wrong. I'm trying to desperately remember the name of the author, but it's an absolute book We'll of look genius. it up and I'll put it yeah. on the show notes. Yeah, it's a great, great book. Um, the problem too often is we overanalyze and think we're right. And then we wait, we do all the planning and then we move. And when we find out that we were wrong, we keep doing it anyway because we've done such great analysis. We must have been right and the real world must be wrong. And we've become very fixed in that being the right way because you've invested so yeah, much in yeah. it. That's, that's back to your point earlier about reality. when you hit reality, you've got to test it out and be prepared to you know, steer a bit as you yeah, go. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I think that's interesting to wrap it up soon. But in terms of personality types, some personality likes really need certainty and a plan and are most uncomfortable if that plan yeah, isn't yeah, there. That, yeah. So they are going to find it more uncomfortable taking on these skills than people who actually quite like to put yeah. one seat to their pants. And, and part, when I was in corporate roles, I would always recruit a number two who was like that because, you know, I am all over the, the place. Planet, right, to balance But you. what I needed yes. was yes. so in, in um, um, Belbin terms, mm -hmm. I'm a resource investigator plant. What I needed was a completer finisher. Totally. Um, because, you and me both. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> you're you probably know, an ENTP yeah. in the ENFP. Uh, oh, okay, there ENFP. You go. Oh, of course, the F. Yes. I, I used to be a partner in Arthur Anderson. And you needed an ESTJ to keep you on track. I am, I am, oh, even better. Yeah, ISTJ. In fact, when I was in Arthur Anderson, it was a joy because there were 95,000 ISTJs and me. It's <laughs> <laughs> just an interesting experience. But it is, again, and I think that ability to deal with ambiguity is, a, is driven by a number of things. And I think one of the things we underestimate is the importance of intellect. If you look at people like Thomas Chamorros Premashek and Adrian Furnham, We've done a lot of work into predicting future performance. There are a number of things, but the biggest, most important thing is having enough intellect. And systemic thinking is that is, you've got to have the intellectual capability to think, you know, very, very broadly. And in the and, and in the minute, being able to do your analysis and then move. Because also, what you described is the other end, which is paralysis by analysis. Mm. If you never do anything, yeah. But actually, you've got to be—you've got to do enough analysis. You've got to have enough brain power. You've got to be able to make sense, as Mian says, of what's going on in the system. Move, but—and I wish I could remember her name—the person who wrote "Being Wrong" is then being willing to accept you might be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. and I think half the problem is—you know—we all know what's going on in politics at the moment, and I think that's <laughs> half the problem in politics is nobody can ever admit to being wrong because the media will say, yeah. "Oh." If we'd been there, oh, we wouldn't have made that decision. Yeah. Yes. Whereas yeah. actually, if you'd been there with the data you had at that time, you'd probably have made the same decision. It turns out it was wrong. And I wish we could allow politicians to be able to stand up and say, do you know what? Six months ago, I said this and I was wrong. Yeah. Because do you know what? The world's different now and we need to make a different decision. But oh no, we all like to second guess. Absolutely. And we'll definitely not go there. <laughs> yes, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> oh, um, uh, so I suppose... So bringing this to a conclusion, then um, much as I'd like to carry on, 
I've, I've got an analogy in my head. I've got a picture in my head now that we are basically in the circus. We've got to be able to walk the tightrope in terms of various things. We need to also be able to sort of ringmaster it, you know, click the way to, to take people with us. Keep the plates spinning. Absolutely, keep the plates spinning. How far can this analogy go? I'm not sure whether taking the step back and being able to see the bigger picture. So so there's an awful lot that um, that comes through. I'm just trying to summarise the things that I'm that I'm thinking of to, to you know, synopsisize this. Um Business starts with business, understanding yep. the problem, looking at the wider business, prior, prioritizing the business with that to serve the business and not getting sucked into the the individual or into the the sort of the people shouting at you the most and the internal customers is about having the courage to challenge others but still being likable yep. and, and influential so you can take yep. people with yep. you. Um it's about us being able to think so we don't get stuck into the busyness. And I suppose that thinking is about us taking a step back yeah. we're in the business, taking yeah. a step back to yeah. make sure we are connecting to the business, about being prepared to change on the hoof, yeah. change direction on the hoof, so so still have that end goal in mind. So you test things, but remember that when reality bites, things are going to vary. Yeah. It's about our intellect in terms of being able to understand systems thinking, ambiguity. Yeah. You know, there isn't necessarily right, so it's all about making yeah. the right yeah. decision in the here and now, but keeping on moving forwards yeah. as much as we can. There's not much to do really there as an HR professional. <laughs> but, but but it's interesting hearing you say that because it, you know it's interesting getting somebody to reflect on your own on what you've said in your own words. And the thing it leaves me with is what a great job HR is. How much fun when when it's properly done and you're operating at the right level. I cannot think of any function that has as much impact as HR can have. Because too many other functions are focused on a particular aspect of the business. HR is operating in the here and now, as we said at the beginning, doing all the basics really, really well, yeah. whilst building the capability of an organisation to deliver in five, ten years' time, whatever the strategic time frame for the organisation is. You are operating across all aspects of the enterprise. You're dealing with every single function, every single geography. What an absolutely wonderful profession to be in. Yeah, you really make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know that's what? a great place to end, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, and on that, um, obviously, as ever, I'll put information on the show notes. There's been loads of links that Nick's dropped in, so I will um, get the actual um, areas and links so you can easily access those. HRuprising.com is where you'll be able to go and view those. Um, is there anything, Nick, just to close down on in terms of the corporate search forum? As we said, it has got a huge amount of yep. of yep. knowledge and courses that yep. that's only really been going since two thousand and sixteen. CRF has been going for twenty five years. Sorry, but the learning the, the course, learning course yes. have only been going, which because yep. I, I wasn't aware of those. Yep. So we, for instance, I'm running a group uh, a group HRD program on Wednesday and Thursday this week. It's the first module. We have two more modules of that. Although being a systemic thinker, we don't know what those two modules will be. Okay. Because it's up to the participants That's a good to define get out. that. <laughs> well, we, I'm no, be, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, we have an integrated talent program coming up in um, November. We have, I, I mentioned this earlier, we have an HR business partner program coming up in October. All of the programs, though, are all the same thing. It's all about start with a business. So, most people come out of these programs not learning new HR skills. They're, they're coming out of it with a shift in mindset. I'd, I'd, I'll tell you one little anecdote and then maybe we can finish. We were running a program and we, keep, we have a WhatsApp group to keep people together and feed information into them. And one of the participants came back and said, I've just had a conversation with three senior business leaders and I adopted a value-based approach and it changed the dynamic. So I was fascinated. I rang her up and what had happened was 
She had three internal customers we talked about earlier asked her to put through um, unbudgeted headcount increases. And she said before the program, her view was her job was to implement that. She'd have done it. After the program, she said, well, hang on a minute. In the next three months, we face an operational cash flow challenge of this amount. If we don't deliver on it, our share price will go down again. So can you explain to me how these un unbudgeted headcount increases contribute to meeting that operational free cash flow in the next three months? And what came out of it was they all withdrew the headcount. And what, what was great to me was it, it was A, it gave her the commercial mm -hmm. language mm -hmm. to engage in a different conversation, but it also gave her the confidence to say no. Yes, brilliant. Because actually what she'd said was no. And as a result... But she'd that, never used the word no. No, and, and she would have had huge credibility as a, as a result of, of and that. And most importantly, she would have saved the business from a value disrupt, destructive action. It was the right thing to do. 100%. Exactly. And that to me ultimately is the measure of success not it made her credible or whatever but it saved yeah. the business from making a really bad, bad decision. business decision absolutely right yeah so ag agreed there the other thing i was going to say you're talking to unleash as well is, is yes, that, yes. That correct going forward the hr doctor again in in october in Amsterdam. great stuff so there's loads there. I was just thinking, uh, smiling wryly, as I said to Nick at the start of this, that we try to keep the conversations with to 40 minutes. And I'm looking at the tape, it's 52 minutes. So if you're Sorry. still with us, thank you. I think the upshot <laughs> is if you put two ENPs in a room together, yes. it's going to run over. <laughs> so on that note, I'm just going to thank everybody for listening. I hope you found uh, this a really, I've found it a really fantastic, inspiring and um, energising conversation. So hopefully it's come over that way for people who are listening. Um, as ever, hruprising.com has got links and things like that so you can follow through and, and look up any of the things that we've referred to here. So I hope you found it of value. Please feel free to um, give feedback on social media or otherwise and suggest future topics of conversation. And I'm sure, Nick, people, you'd be happy for people to Absolutely. contact you as well. Yeah. Just if you put my email. I'll put your contact details right. on there. Yeah. Lovely. So thanks for listening. This is the HR Uprising and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.